I'm Dan Palazzolo, and I'm co-director, along with my colleague Terry Price, of the Marshall, uh, John Marshall Institute International Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and we welcome you here this afternoon. The Marshall Center is made possible by a generous gift from the Thomas W. Smith Foundation, and we're very grateful for their support. Um, today, we have uh, a special guest who is going to introduce our speaker. Some of you do not need to be introduced to Dr. Crutcher, but we're grateful to have him. Dr. Crutcher is president of the University of Richmond and a national leader in higher education. He also served as president of Wheaton College for 10 years. Dr. Crutcher was the founding co-chair of Liberal Education and America's Promise, LEAP, the Association of American Colleges and Universities national campaign to demonstrate the value of liberal education. He writes and speaks widely on the value of liberal education, the democratic purposes of higher education, diversity and inclusion, and free expression on college campuses. He serves on the boards of the American Council of Education and AACNU. Dr. Crutcher is also a professor of music and a distinguished classical musician. He is a former member of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and several other orchestras, and currently serves on the board of the Richmond Symphony. For almost 40 years, he has performed in the US and Europe as a member of the Klemperer Trio. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Crutcher. Thank you very much, Dan. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for your presence here. One of the reasons I wanted to be here today, and I'm hoping to come back tomorrow morning before I leave for uh, Detroit, is um, not only to welcome our guest speaker, Professor Bejan, but uh, also because I'm a real champion of the Marshall Center. Um, and uh, and, and I'm, I, I, I'm in, indebted to um, Professors Palazzolo and, and Price for their leadership. But my role today is to introduce you to our, our speaker. Uh, professor Bejan is Associate Professor of Political Theory and Fellow of Oriel College at the University of Oxford. Previously, she taught at the University of Toronto and as a Fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at Columbia University. She writes widely about political theory and scholarly and popular venues, bringing historical perspectives to bear on contemporary questions. Her first book, Mere Civility, Disagreements and the Limits of Toleration, published by Harvard University Press, was called Penetrating and Sophisticated by the New York Times, and her work has been featured on PBS, WNYC, CBC Radio, Philosophy Bites, I want to know what that's all about, and other podcasts. She also gave a fantastic TED Salon talk called Is Civility a Sham? And if you haven't seen it, I would commend it to you, which now has more than 1.5 million views. In addition to her many articles in academic journals and edited volumes, she has written on free speech and civility for The Atlantic and The Washington Post. She's currently working on a book, a new book on the history of equality before modern egalitarianism, supported by a Leverhulme Research Fellowship. Professor Bejan received her PhD with distinction from Yale in 2013. 
She's the recipient of the American Political Science Association's 2015 Leo Strauss Award for the Best Doctoral Dissertation in Political Philosophy. And in 2016, she was elected as the final Balzan Skinner Fellow in Modern Intellectual History at the University of Cambridge. I, for one, am especially excited about Dr. Bijan's lecture this afternoon about tolerance and civility. In fact, as I was thinking about it on the way over here, and I said this to her beforehand, politicians in DC ought to be required to watch your TED Talk. <laughs> they may not read the book, but at least they can watch the TED Talk. Please join me in welcoming Professor Teresa Bijan. Thank you, President Crutcher, for that really kind introduction. And it's just a real pleasure to be here with you all today. Um, I'm honored to speak to you uh, on the theme of tolerance and civility, or more precisely, on the relationship between these two concepts. What precisely is the role of civility in a tolerant society? Do we need less of it, or do we need more of it? So you might think that this is a topic that matters mostly for leaders or potential leaders in our own aspirationally, perhaps, uh, but aspirationally tolerant society. And it's fitting that I'm addressing you as a guest of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. Um, but I also think that the virtues of tolerance and civility, if indeed they are virtues, which is one of the things that I'll be considering in my lecture, are important for followers as well. And to how ma the many of us here uh, choose to follow our leaders, how we behave in following our chosen leaders, political or otherwise. I often wonder why there aren't any schools of followership studies. <laughs> I think we could use more of them, right? Um, anyway, I've been invited to speak to you would-be leaders as an expert of sorts on civility. Uh, it's a dubious distinction, I think, but as Professor, uh, as Dr. Crutcher mentioned, um, it's a topic I've been thinking about for a long time, sort of over 10 years now. I published a book on it in 2017, and as you can see, we've made great progress since then, so I can really just, you know, go home. <laughs> or rather, as I should say, as an expert on civility, I can truly say there are few perennials in politics as predictable as the crisis of civility. Over the past three decades, this crisis has become a permanent affliction in liberal democratic societies across the world. Societies like this one, that define themselves increasingly by their aspiration to be tolerant, as well as open and free. And so in the United States, or in the UK, where I live now, whenever the national conversation gets heated, as in an election year, the calls for conversational virtue begin. And those calls are met quickly by eye rolls from the skeptics uh, who are always suspicious that the self-appointed guardians of civil discourse are more concerned to silence their opponents than to have an actually civil debate. So far, so familiar, right? And all that's really changed in recent years, if anything, is that the eyes roll a little more quickly from several decades' practice. Um, and who can, who can blame the skeptics? Who can blame us? While civility's boosters continue to insist on the profound importance of what we say to each other, as well as how we say it, as a panacea for all that ails us, skeptics will simply note that as a solution to the problems facing our deeply divided democracies today, civility seems inadequate at best, and at worst, potentially counterproductive. I mean, firstly, there never was 
a golden age of civil disagreement or good feelings in this country, our democratic politics has always been brutal and bruising. Right? But secondly, what sense does more civility make as a solution to the problems that we seem to face? Why on earth should we think that talking to each other more at length about the fundamental questions that divide us should bring us closer, no matter how civilly we do it? Surely the tolerant thing to do would be to agree to disagree, accept our differences and move on. And if those differences are such that we can't move on, that we can't get past them, well, surely we better accept that a civil disagreement simply isn't on the cards. A call for civility in the circumstances seems to be mainly an instrument of intolerance, both of the so-called deep differences that divide us and of the disagreements that those differences provoke. Moreover, recent political de developments have attuned us now more than ever, I think, to the downside and the dark side of civility. Increasingly, we hear that in the face of injustice, good manners are tantamount to complicity. Critics on all sides of the political spectrum, and I think it's important to note that you do hear this on all sides of the political spectrum, um, claim that civility isn't a virtue at all. It's really a vice. It's a vice that demands deference to elites those who are already privileged by the status quo, which is unjust. And at the same time, it delegitimizes dissent and marginalizes those who are already marginal. Indeed, when I began working on civility and tolerance 10 years ago, I myself was motivated mainly by my own suspicions about the dark side of civility, or to put it more precisely, by my sense that the abundance of civility talk in the United States at the time was, strictly speaking, and, and I use this as a technical term, it was bullshit. <laughs> it's a technical term. And since then, I would suggest that the public suspicion of civility has really reached an all-time high. And in places, I think, in many college campuses, indeed, we're, we're witnessing a rebellion. And it's a rebellion not against the regime, per se, but against civility itself. There's a widespread sense that the time for civil disagreement is over, that of righteous outrage, public shaming, and a tireless calling out of our opponents has begun. And so on this view, what our tolerant society needs is more incivility, not less, right? Uh, we need a call-out culture that itself brooks no intolerance. And this, I think, will be familiar to many of you, especially as, as residents of, of, of this city and this state, right? It's a version of what Karl Popper famously described in the 20th century as the paradox of tolerance. In his words, quote, if we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant, right? I'm seeing nods. Many of you have seen this on Twitter. There was a, there was a meme about this that we should show intolerance towards those we deem to be intolerant themselves, and thus incivility besides, I think it's increasingly common knowledge in a lot of circles. And I think that this fear and frustration motivating that, that, that suspicion, it's, a, it's a, a fear and a frustration about our uncertainty about civility's place in a tolerant society. I think all of this is really understandable. Um, still, for all the moral clarity on all sides of the debate, right? The civility debate or the paradox of tolerance debate, I think a fatal fuzziness really remains. And, and that fuzziness pertains to a question, which is simply, what exactly is civility? 
It's striking that in the midst of all of our hand-wringing and grandstanding about the loss of this supposedly essential virtue, or the overabundance of this vice, depending on how you see it, the basic question remains unanswered. But surely before we reject civility, we ought to be quite clear on exactly what it is that we're rejecting, lest we miss it once it's gone. And so in the rest of my lecture, I propose to answer that question and to explore the meaning of civility in light of its long and complicated history. And it's a history we shall see that came to a head in early modern European debates about religious tolerance um, in the Reformation and in the centuries following. So that close historical connection with tolerance, I think, explains why members of a 21st century liberal democracy like this one continually find ourselves appealing to an unapologetically antiquated and old-fashioned concept like civility, right? That is not a 21st century virtue. Um, but we appeal to it sort of instinctively whenever we feel our own fundamental disagreements driving us farther and farther apart. But as such, I hope to show you that civility has always been controversial. As we'll see, the rebellion against civility began the second that the concept was first invoked to quiet a religious controversy. And so today, I'm going to introduce you to some of civility's earliest critics as well, men who were justifiably suspicious that the prosecution of incivility was just another way to persecute dissent. While this forgotten history suggests that modern skeptics are right to be suspicious, indeed, most civility talk in the 17th century or today is just bullshit, again, in the technical sense. It doesn't therefore follow that civility itself is a vice, let alone that conscientious incivility is a virtue, right? Which I think some people today would want to make it a virtue. And so I'm gonna conclude by showing that one of the earliest defenders of religious tolerance stumbled upon something I call mere civility as the key to unmurderous coexistence between those who not only differed, but really seriously disagreed on those issues that they considered to be fundamental. The idea of mere civility I find in a 17th century Puritan thinker, a man called Roger Williams, who was the founder of the colony of Rhode Island. How many here have heard of Roger Williams? Oh, wow. Why? We do it again, raise your hand again. Okay, this is a generational thing. Okay, no, you, you, you guys, you guys have heard of them. Right, so I'm from North Carolina. I never heard of Roger Williams before I went to university. All right, okay. Um, well, good, so you know what's coming. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm gonna use Roger Williams as an exemplar here. And specifically, um, I'm gonna use him and the society that he created in Rhode Island to challenge many of the pre preconceptions I think that we have about what a tolerant or a civil society should look like. And specifically when it comes to this question of tolerating the intolerant. So the example that Williams and others set in Rhode Island gives us good reason, I'll argue, to think that a tolerant society must be prepared to tolerate the intolerant too. In this endeavor, However, the unabashedly mere civility that Williams practiced offers, I think, a promising path forward. And I believe it is a virtue, and it's a virtue of which we are in desperate, really dire need at the moment. Okay. Let's begin at the beginning. What is civility? Well, the most obvious answer is that civility is synonymous with good manners or politeness. 
And if that were the extent of it, I think the skeptics would be right. It would sound like that's something really quite trivial. It's a thin branch to hang our hopes on for the saving of modern democracies. But if you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, which you should because it is a God's gift to this world, <laughs> if you go to the OED, um, it suggests that defining civility is a little bit more complicated than that. And indeed, what we tend to think of as the first definition of civility, that of politeness, courtesy, or consideration, in the OED is offered only as the 12th definition. Sorry, there we have a sense of, well, actually, maybe this is more complicated, and there's a long history here. So we want to be more precise. We might say that civility is a conversational virtue, yes, and it's a virtue akin to politeness, courtesy, or respect, but that it's, just, it's distinguished from these other virtues by several peculiar features. First, by conversational virtue, I mean that civility is a virtuous disposition or standard of behavior that's meant to govern how people speak to each other, both in the substance of what they say and in the manner of how they say it. But right away, we can see that civility, unlike politeness or decorum or courtesy, is meant to govern one kind of conversation in particular. That it's, it's not just a matter of how we speak to each other. It's more precisely a matter of how we disagree. As the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes pointed out, there's a reason that the word disagreeable in English is a synonym for unpleasant. As he put it in his 1642 work, De Kive, quote, the mere act of disagreement is offensive because not to agree with someone on an issue is tacitly to accuse him of error, just as to dissent from him in a large number of points is tantamount to calling him a fool. So there's an, an, an insult implicit in disagreement. In disagreeing, we're always implicitly accusing our opponent of having reasoned incorrectly. But if disagreement itself is difficult, the conversational vir virtue of civility is salient to one kind of disagreement in particular, namely those disagreements when the issues at stake are those we consider to be somehow fundamental, right? Fundamental to our worldviews as well as to our personal and social identities. You know the kinds of questions I mean. They're the questions of religion, politics, and increasingly, you know, in my family, the politics of popular culture, right? And they go straight to the heart of how we see the world and how we see each other in that world. So one doesn't discuss religion or politics at the dinner table because these are the commitments that people really seriously disagree about and they define themselves and their opponents in the controversy. And so those discussions are the ones that happen, tend to become heated, right? And they become heated and then they become hateful. As these disagreements of believing and belonging begin to feel particularly fraught, however, civility holds out the hope that they can remain not only possible, but even occasionally sometimes productive. Right? So that's the first feature of civility. It pertains to fundamental disagreement. What about the second feature? Well, here we see that civility's role in regulating conversational conflict uh, raises a second, uh, a second consideration. So in contrast with other conversational virtues like politeness, respect, etc., civility is distinguished by its minimal character and occasionally negative overtones, right? Civility is a low bar, grudgingly met. When we call for more civility from our opponents, we have something less than deference in mind, right? As a conversational virtue, civility is at home in the uneasy relations between ex-spouses or bad neighbors, as well as members of the other party. 
Funny, uh, you know, I was flying here from Heathrow yesterday, and the man at the table next to me was talking to a business associate on his phone. He's like, well, you know, I can be civil to him, but I really don't want to go to dinner, just the two of us. I was like, yeah, exactly, that's what civil means. We might call this virtue then mere civility. But unlike many virtues, it operates not as a ceiling, not as a kind of bar to aspire to, but really as a floor of acceptable behavior, and woe betide those who fall beneath that floor. And I think that really brings us to the third and final feature of civility, um, as I would define it. So, in this pertains to the, to the agents or subjects of civility. So consider the many cognate words that uh, we have in English um, it, uh, alongside civility, words like civic, civilian, civilization, citizen. All of these are derived, like the word civility itself, from the Latin term civitas, which means the body of citizens or the state. And this suggests that civility doesn't govern disagreements between just anyone, right? It's pertinent to disagreements between individuals who stand in a peculiar kind of relation. That is, those who live together as members of the same civil society or state. So taking these three features together, we might define civility as follows. It's a conversational virtue that's expected from all members of a civil society as such. It's meant primarily to regulate the fundamental disagreements between them. And as such, we might imagine that it has a particularly important role to play in a tolerant society. Right? So if it's a virtue that inheres in civil society, we might think it's particularly needed in tolerant societies. But I also think it explains why, despite the widespread assumption that civility is just a synonym for politeness, being labeled as uncivil is clearly so much worse than being called impolite. Because calling someone uncivil is a signet to the recipient that she is somehow beyond the pale in some way. It indicates that she herself is intolerable in a way that plain rudeness doesn't. After all, we put up with rude people all the time. Interestingly, however, treating her uncivilly, as we might be inclined to do if she herself is guilty of incivility, right? Treating her uncivilly has the same exclusionary effect. So uncivil treatment is, after all, not just an unpleasant experience for those on the receiving end. Like calling someone uncivil, treating them uncivilly is an indication that the disagreement is over. No further conversation is possible. It's tantamount to taking one's ball and going home and perhaps hitting them in the face with it on your way out, right? Here again, the close conceptual connection between civility and tolerance comes into view. In modern liberal democracies like the US, societies that aspire to be tolerant as well as civil, we see civility essential, um, as essential because it enables us not only to differ, but to disagree and nevertheless live together with others, despite the inevitable disagreeableness of those disagreements. In such a society, then, mere civility is a sign that we're willing to tolerate others no matter how much we might dislike them or their contrary commitments. It gets us in the room and talking despite our differences, and it keeps us in that room during our disagreements about the things that matter most. But on the flip side of every civil disagreement is the specter of suppression or exclusion, the suspicion that those who fail to meet the bar of even mere civility are unequal to the task of toleration and thus have no place in a tolerant society themselves. They are indeed intolerable and so undeserving of civility. And so there again, we're just back at the paradox of tolerance. To be civil towards them is to tolerate those who do not deserve to be tolerated.
So the conceptual complexity of civility I've outlined thus far, I think is itself a fitting reflection of an equally complex history. Which of its etymologies modern commentators choose to highlight often depends on where they stand or sit on whether civility is or is not a virtue. So boosters of civility, the people who are always calling for more civility, tend to emphasize its classical roots in the Latin civitas, and they sort of characterize it as an ideal of public spiritedness or, or civic virtue, political friendship, right? They, they talk about this sort of classical uh, dimension. Critics of civility, on the other hand, prefer to highlight the exclusionary potential of those ideals and note how they became handmaidens of colonialism, empire, and racism. So to take for an example, in 1755, Samuel Johnson, in his dictionary, defines civility as, quote, freedom from barbarity, the state of being civilized. And as a synonym for civilization, ideals of civility clearly worked to justify the displacement and oppression of the so-called savage peoples of North America, right? So as the European conquest of North America proceeded, there was this kind of ideology of civility and civilization saying, surely the barbarous ought to give way to the civil. I mean, a more recent memory, right? In the 20th century, during the civil rights movement, Protesters were often accused of being uncivil or kind of savage, and you know they they, they were um, disrupting society in the demand for civil rights. And so, civility talk was a way of suppressing and excluding protesters. So, such a history suggests that critics of civility are right to be suspicious, and that civility is and was and always will be part and parcel of what we describe as a civilizing discourse. Right, a way of normalizing, excluding, suppressing, etc. Still, in what follows, I'll suggest that the origins of our modern concept of civility, with all of its peculiar features, lie not in the 18th century practice of empire, but in the 16th and 17th centuries, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation and the long controversies over religious toleration that it inspired. And as this alternative history reminds us, not all civilizing discourses are created equal. I feel like that's a sort of a provocative thing to say, and I do mean to provoke here. The suggestion that once you've identified something as a civilizing discourse that you've sort of necessarily then uh, impugned or rejected it, I don't think follows, <laughs> right? We then have to say, okay, well, you know, it's, is, what kind of civilizing discourse is it? Can we do without it? Um, because as we'll see, how one defines civility and how one proposes to enforce it matter quite a lot. So arguably, the first modern crisis of civility was kicked off by none other than Martin Luther, who made himself master of a recent uh, revolution in communications technology, i.e. the printing press. Now, you have to think about the printing press like Twitter, but more disruptive. Um, <laughs> when the Pope finally responded to Luther's 95 theses by declaring 41 of those theses heretical, Luther responded quite reasonably by calling the Pope the Antichrist. Right? And so in the murder of Dresden, um, published in 1531, Luther announced himself, quote, unable to pray without at the same time cursing. If I'm prompted to say, hallowed be thy name, I must add, cursed, damned, and outraged be the name of papists and all those who slander your name. Thus orally every day and in my heart without intermission. I am well convinced that God will hear our prayers. So the longstanding Protestant tradition of calling Catholics papists 
or anti-Christians, that is, followers of the papal antichrist, originated with Luther. The Catholics, of course, gave as good as they got with traditional labels like heretic or schismatic, while experimenting also with other insults, including the term Protestant, because Protestant, of course, starts as an insult. So when Leo X excommunicates Luther in 1521, he bestowed upon Martin's followers the, insult, the insulting denomination of Lutheran, so that they might share in Martin's punishment and shame. So when critics like the high-minded humanist scholar Desiderius Erasmus accused Luther of lowering the conversational tenor and violating the standard of civilitas, or civility, Luther retorted that the truth would always be offensive to those privileged by an unjust status quo. Quote, you can't turn the sword into a feather, he wrote, and the word of God is a sword. As he helpfully reminded his followers, the Greek term evangel could also mean a shout. Many of the self-described evangelical Christians then, who emerged in the ensuing years, took Luther's advice to heart, often to his chagrin. One particularly striking example of this in the 17th century in England was the early Quakers, who experimented with many different forms of enthusiastic evangelism, deliberately offensive to social mores. So for those more familiar with the uh, Society of Friends today as a kind of pacifist, organization. This may come as a bit of a shock, so I'm sorry. Uh, but the early Quakers were a really rambunctious bunch. They were known, among other things, for taking off their clothes in public for a sign and disrupting Anglican church services by banging pots and pans or, in some cases, throwing excrement and demanding to know, quote, by what authority the minister preached. And in one case, a Quaker man reportedly took off his pants and lay down on the communion table in order to disrupt the service, right? So the Quakers and other sectarians uh, coupled their, what we might call euphemistically, free speech fundamentalism with a principled critique of civility itself. So like Luther and other Puritan dissenters within the Church of England, the Quakers argued that a truly evangelical Protestant Christian had a duty to protest and thus to offend the sensibilities of those invested in the corrupt status quo. So conversational virtue on this view was simply a cover for hypocrisy. So, quote, civility doth but wash the outside. The inwards must be washed. A sow may be washed, yet a sow still. So that's the sort of 17th century version of you can't put lipstick on a pig. Um, it was thus as far from true spiritual virtue as, quote, strewing flowers on a dead corpse, unquote. So by contrast, the spirit of protest at the heart of Protestantism demanded conscientious incivility in the form of disruptive witness against the powers that happened to be. Little wonder, then, that the, quote, civil person hath an aching tooth at religion, his heart riseth against holiness, and hath a secret antipathy against the ways of God. The growing impression that the prosecution of incivility was just another way to persecute dissent in the 17th century was confirmed by the popularity of adverbial redefinitions of heresy. So laws that instead of defining heresy as a matter of doctrine, actually defined it in terms of the manner in which doctrines were held, right? So heresy became a religious opinion, quote, factiously, obstinately, or pertinaciously upheld, unquote, right? So today, we tend to think of toleration or tolerance as the obvious solution to this problem. But history reminds us of just how not obvious tolerance was as a solution to disruptive religious and evangelical disagreements. 
From the perspective of the participants, persecution of the tongue, as they called it, by uncivil evangelical protesters was just as pressing a danger as persecution by sword or stake. And toleration seemed a surefire way to make the war of words worse. Because what toleration would do would be to bring evangelists into closer contact and then encourage them to compete for converts. Right? It's a recipe for uncivil conflict and controversy. Thus, by the mid-17th century, the consensus among many English dissenters, much like today's critics of civility, was that civility was just the latest watchword of the would-be persecutor, nothing more. And this in turn confirmed the impression of those like our friend Thomas Hobbes that a civil society could not now and could never be a tolerant society as well. Right? If we want a civil society, we cannot tolerate religious difference. If we want a tolerant society, it will never be a civil one. Because, so the idea there is that the permission of religious differences is inevitably going to lead to uncivil evangelical disagreement, mutual offense, and from there, by degrees, into civil war. Lucky for us, however, a few dissenters at the time were willing to challenge this common consensus about the incompatibility of civility and tolerance. And they were willing to think a little differently. And so even though Roger Williams shared his fellow suspicions of civility, uh, his fellow um, dissenters' suspicion of civility, he nevertheless floated the frankly ridiculous notion that unmurderous coexistence in a tolerant society might be possible after all, and that mere civility might hold the key. That man, Roger Williams, uh, is, is known today, but I don't, maybe, I don't think that even for those who know him here that you really know him. So let me tell you a bit about how unlikely a candidate this man really was as a defender of civility. To understand this, you have to understand a little bit of where he came from. So like most Puritans, Roger Williams left England in the 1630s, not simply because he wanted to flee the rising tide of persecution, but because he had had enough of living in a society of sinners. He wanted to live in a society of saints. So inspired by John Winthrop, Williams hoped that Boston might become a perfectly just and virtuous city on a hill in which the righteous could live among the like-minded as models of Christian charity, far apart from and far above those they consider to be damned. Anyone here from Boston? Yeah, you, you tell me how that went. It went well, right? <laughs> Williams, of course, was soon disappointed uh, before he even arrived in Boston, he began to see that the unchristian Christians of New England, as he called them, were hypocrites who ostentatiously condemned and cried out against the sins of others while living on land that they had th themselves had stolen from the Native Americans. Williams makes this point in the 1630s. He does not win many friends. But that wasn't Williams' only offensive opinion. So in addition to floating the suggestion that women should wear veils in public, in keeping with St. Paul's counsel to the Corinthians. He preached against the sinfulness of swearing civil oaths and was apparently caught defacing an English flag by cutting out the cross of St. George because he saw it as a sinful, combi a sinful combination and conflation of civil and religious power, a violation of the necessary wall of separation, as he called it, between church and state. Which is all to say that Williams was, in effect, too theologically intolerant, that is, too Puritan for his fellow Puritans which perhaps explains why he soon left Boston for Salem, later famous for its witch trials, because it was more congenial. 
But in addition to what we might call euphemistically William's strong views, it's important to remember that as an evangelical Christian, or as you might say, a shouty Christian, technically in the Greek, Williams also saw it at his, at his, as his duty to witness tirelessly and vehemently, in his words, against the sins of his fellow New English, and indeed of the Americans too, sort of the American Indians, against what he saw as their spiritual errors. And Williams was at that for years, for years, before his fellow Puritans finally decided to banish him for his incivility. Which should remind us of an important fact, I think, that many modern revivers of Williams are too eager to forget. So oftentimes we get these modern accounts of Williams where he's some kind of like secular liberal wandering around the, the wilderness talking about the virtues of tolerance, etc. It's just, you know, that, no, that is not this guy, right? We need to remember that Roger Williams could be really obnoxious. After all, even he would concede in print that his banishment from Massachusetts had had something to do with his, quote, constant admonishing of them in their unclean walking. So like Luther, Williams was a virtuoso of what today we might describe as hate speech. Although he would later propose to tolerate Catholics, he nevertheless called them always anti-Christians or papists, right? He never called them Catholics. He always used the slurs. And as for the Americans, while some recent commentators like Martha Nussbaum have been tempted to romanticize Williams' relationship with the Narragansett um, and Wampanoag tribes, um, depicting him as a kind of multiculturalist running around New England, um, it, it was more than a, quote, respectful curiosity, as Nussbaum puts it, that led Williams to interact with the Americans. And indeed, he learned their languages because he wanted to convert them, as a good evangelical Christian should. Right? He's very clear that he abhors what he calls their quote-unquote barbarous customs. Still, Williams was really emphatic that there was more civility to be found among the American barbarians than among the unchristian Christians of New England. And he would later plead for religious toleration on the Narragansett's behalf to parliament itself. This is incredible in the 1650s to do this. And this experience, I think, explains why Williams, unlike other dissenters demanding toleration, never rejected civility itself. Rather, he took a different tack. Sheltered by the Narragansett tribe, he became convinced that even those who disagreed on the fundamentals of faith and were mutually intolerant of each other's errors could nevertheless share a common life. He had, after all, learned the hard way that one must, quote, go out of the world if one would not keep civil converse with idolaters. Still, he insisted that if, quote, men keep but the bond of civility, they might live together, despite their many spiritual oppositions, unquote. So it should be clear right now that by civil, Williams did not mean polite. As a tireless and obnoxious evangelist, he knew from experience just how uncivil that could seem to those on the receiving end. Yet unlike Luther, Williams refused to reserve the right to be offensive to the self-righteous alone. Civility, he insisted, like religious truth, was in the eye of the beholder, quote, that ourselves and all men are apt and prone to differ, that either part or party is most right in his own eyes, his cause right, his carriage right, his arguments right, his answers right. This is no new thing in all the former ages in all parts of the world, right? It's a human characteristic that we, considers ourselves, we consider ourselves to be alone, right, and righteous. As a good Protestant, Williams also believed that the truth would always be particularly offensive to those privileged by the status quo, too. Nevertheless, yet, 
Um, oh, this is a way of putting that. Quote, when a kingdom or state, town, or family lies and lives in the guilt of a false god, no wonder if sore eyes be troubled at the, peer, the appearance of light, or if persons sleepy loving to sleep be troubled as the, at the noise of shrill, though silver, alarms. Right, so a sleepy man annoyed by his alarm clock. Right, that's how we feel about those who are pointing out injustice to us. But rather than rejecting conversational virtue, for Williams, this meant simply that civility could not be a matter of policing other speech or avoiding controversial topics. Rather, mere civility must begin at home with the willingness to hold one's nose and remain present to one's opponents, no matter how intolerable or indeed deplorable one found their views, and to talk about their errors to them, that is, to their faces, and not behind their backs, with one's like-minded friends. It was a lot more fun to do that than the opposite, isn't it? And to do so ideally until the deplorables recognized that you, not they, were right, although one couldn't be confident that that would come to be because conversion, after all, was in God's hands. And so with Canonicus, the Narragansett Sacum, or chief, gifted Williams the land that would become Providence, he decided to put this controversial idea about civility and tolerance to the test. Even then, it's not clear that Williams really intended to found a society, let alone a tolerant society. The founding of Rhode Island, when you look, about it, look at it historically, it seems to have been an accident. Williams didn't set out to lead, but he was certainly followed by fellow exiles and troublemakers like Anne Hutchinson or Samuel Gorton, who were as obnoxious as he was, or even more obnoxious, who joined his plantation or colony, as it's called, much to his chagrin. And so to say that the success of William's lively experiment in Rogue's Island, as its critics called it, was not a foregone conclusion is an understatement. So the self-styled saints next door in Connecticut or Massachusetts were constantly complaining that William's colony had become the latrine of New England, as they called it, a receptacle for all sorts of riffraff. That's also a quote. But apart from the normal challenges of life among evangelicals on the colonial frontier, what was truly exceptional about Rhode Island was not just the absence of an established church, but that Rhode Island welcomed Protestants of all stripes, Jews, Muslims, American pagans, so American Indians, and also Catholic anti-Christians. All were welcome to live together on terms of equal liberty, including, and this is really essential, including the liberty to proselytize, to try to win converts. So in William's colony, as long as one was willing to practice mere civility by fighting for their, by their, for their faith with words, not swords, no one was beyond the pale. No one, well, okay, maybe one group. Right? There was only one group ever to seriously test the limits of William's toleration. Guess who it was? The Quakers. Very good. <laughs> so when Quakers began flocking to Rhode Island in the 1650s, Williams was terrified that they were going to prove his critics right, that tolerance was indeed a recipe for disorder and civil strife, that is, that tolerance and civility could not go together. But Williams' main objection to the Quakers, perhaps surprisingly, surprisingly was what he saw as their intolerance. He saw a kind of intolerance implicit in their incivility. So as he puts it, quote, their religion leads to a sudden cutting off of people, yea, of kings opposing them, and to as fiery persecution for matters of religion and conscience as hath been or can be practiced by any hunters or persecutors in the world. Right. So in worrying about the Quakers, Williams himself is worrying about the paradox of tolerant, tolerance, whether or not his tolerant society can tolerate these people. So given that the Quakers would soon be put to death 
by the colony of Massachusetts and were themselves some of the best and most you know, conscientious def defenders of religious toleration, this sounds a bit rich. Let's say that you know, Williams isn't covering himself in glory. Uh, in these concerns about Quaker intolerant, intolerance. But I think I, I do want to encourage you to take it seriously and sort of try to figure out what, what, what exactly was he worried about. And I think that when you look at what really bothered him about the Quakers, one of the things is their, their tendency to fall into silent prayer when someone tries to disagree with them. So the Quaker silence... <laughs> was a way, in Williams' eyes, it was a sign of intolerance, because it was an intolerance of engaging in evangelical disagreement with others. It was a way of shutting down the conversation. Right? You might think of this as early modern cancel culture, maybe. Is that, that, what, that what that is? Um, but thankfully for the Quakers and for us, Williams also knew that the surest way to convince someone that they were right or righteous uh, was to subject them to persecution. Right? So instead of not tolerating, tolerating the Quakers, he did the merely civil thing. He accepted them into Rhode Island and he challenged several leading Quakers to a public debate and spent three days trying to convince them that they were wrong, even though Williams was so old and ill at that point that he had to be carried into the venue on his sickbed. He still continued to practice what he preached. So forget the founding, right? In my book, I argue that America's long tradition of free speech fundamentalism starts here, right? In this peculiar evangelical moment where tolerance and mere civility are seen to go together. So it may not have been the multicultural idol imagined by some secular liberals today, but still for over a century, Rogue's Island was the most tolerant society the world had ever seen. And Williams accomplished this by challenging what Karl Popper or even John Locke, only 50 years later, would present as obvious, namely that a tolerant society could not tolerate the intolerant. Of course, the intolerant for Locke were primarily Roman Catholics. <laughs> But whereas Locke, who is celebrated today as the father of liberal toleration, excluded Catholics and atheists from toleration due to what he saw as their intolerance, Williams included both in Rhode Island and many more besides. So Williams is far more tolerant than Locke is, right? And it's interesting, right? Williams always calls Catholics anti-Christians, and yet he tolerates them, whereas Locke always refers to them sort of respectfully as, uh, well, he calls them papists sometimes, but he, he often, in the letter concerning toleration, he refers to them euphemistically as followers of the Mufti of Constantinople, by analogy. He won't even say their name. He doesn't use the slur. But the conclusion is that we can't have them in our tolerant society. Unlike Locker Popper, I think, William saw that living on terms of equal liberty with the damned was not impossible. Rather, in a tolerant society, living with those one regarded as damned was precisely the point. That's the point of a tolerant society. So, and as William knew from experience, a tolerant society cannot pick and choose its materials and remain tolerant for long. Mere civility must thus serve as a tool of uncomfortable inclusion in a tolerant society. And I want to sit with that phrase for a minute because I think for all of our talk about inclusion today and the goodness of inclusion, we sometimes lose touch with that, with how uncomfortable inclusion really is. And unless we face the challenges, right, we're not going to be able to enjoy the goods of inclusion as well. If we think inclusion is going to be easy, well, we've got another thing coming, right? And we're not really committed to seeing it through. And so my view, which is inspired by Roger Williams, is really that a tolerant and inclusive society must be grounded in what ultimately is a kind of radical and frankly unreasonable faith in the possibility of a common life and shared future with those people that we will and sometimes often will continue to hate. 
So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Well, I think in the first instance, this forgotten history should at the very least challenge some of our assumptions about what a tolerant or civil society should look like or must look like. So the tolerant society that Williams founded accidentally when his own incivility finally saw him exiled from Massachusetts never would have worked in theory, never would have worked in theory. And yet it worked in practice. As a political theorist, I sort of take that as a kind of, <laughs> a kind of counsel to humility, right? It suggests that we need to be really careful when we repeat conclusions that seem familiar or obvious or you know, necessarily theoretically true. Conclusions like locks or paupers, right? That of course the intolerant have no place in a tolerant society, right? That seems to be true in theory, but let's look at how that works in practice. But I would also go farther and suggest that today's ongoing crises of tolerance and civility show that we still have a lot to learn from Roger Williams, especially, I think, those today who, like the early Quakers, are tempted to give up on civil disagreement because they fear the soul of the nation is at stake. Right? I think the critics are right. The soul of the nation is at stake. And a civil society is not necessarily a just one. right? That's as true now as it was in the 17th century. Still, Williams' understanding of mere civility, mere civility, holds out the hope that the members of a tolerant society might nonetheless be able to work together to make their society more just, despite their disagreements and dislike. So mere civility on Williams' model is no obstacle to crying out against injustice or calling out injustice to use the modern phrase, right? Actually, the whole point of mere civility on William's model is to do precisely that. Mere civility is the virtue that makes it possible for us to do this important work of protesting against injustice. But mere civility does demand that when we do so, we do so without denying or destroying the possibility of a common life tomorrow with the people we believe to be standing in our way today. Because disagreeing with them or protesting against them or sort of labeling them in some way doesn't make them go away. Really sorry to break this to you. You can't wish your opponents away. So what does mere civility demand? Well, it demands that we remain committed to talking and to disagreeing and to engaging without convincing. Right? It demands that we not pull our punches, but also perhaps that we not land all of those punches at once. Right. Above all, it suggests that if you're talking about civility as a way to avoid having a difficult disagreement, well, you're doing it wrong. Um, and if you're tempted to valorize incivility or to make it the virtue and civility the vice, you're forgetting that it's rarely the powerful or the privileged few whose voices will be drowned out, but those who are already disadvantaged and marginal. Mere civility reminds us that the temptation to achieve a tolerant society through exclusion by pushing those we sincerely believe to be uncivil beyond the pale is constant. And we need to be careful, right, that when we're tempted to do that, we're not actually more concerned to avoid the disagreeableness of disagreement in favor of the more agreeable company of the like-minded. And that we're not trying to isolate ourselves in the more congenial society of saints, covertly, whether in social media or offline, or indeed on a college campus. And so Williams knew well Unmurderous coexistence with the intolerant infidel next door is no picnic. But neither is the society of saints. Infidels, after all, are people too. So are the intolerant. 
Continued engagement with them on terms of mere civility may be all we can hope for. Still, it's nonetheless essential and miraculous for that. And so as a member of this tolerant society, I say two cheers for mere civility. We'll miss it when it's gone. Thank you. Great, so the question is, can civility be taught? Can it be learned? Yes, in identifying civility as a virtue, I'm thinking about it as a kind of disposition that's acquired over time through practice. So we learn it like we would learn any other virtue. Um, most importantly, I think, by having models or exemplars of people that we think of as perfecting this excellence or virtue. So in using Roger Williams as a model here, I'm actually sort of treating him as an exemplar and trying, although failing all the time, to emulate him in my own practice. But I think that learning civility, learning mere civility, is really hard work. And it's not really a pleasant business. This isn't good news. But maybe it's great news. So are there any exemplars in the 21st century, not just the 17th century? I prefer to treat these topics historically because I find, because <laughs> I find that um, one of the problems that we have, I think, in discussing the kind of theoretical or sort of philosophical in issues underlying the kind of practical problems we face is that people remain really partisan. Right, so they are more interested on whether, you know, in whether someone has, is, you know, is on the right side rather than in you could actually learn something from someone with whom you really disagree. And so I think that thinking about these things historically leads to a really helpful distancing, right? So we might say, oh, I'm not a Puritan who thinks women should wear veils in public. Nevertheless, there's something really interesting going on here. Um, so it's a way of sidestepping your question. I mean, I think that there are people to whom I look up and whom I like to read a lot, but I really don't think that civility is a partisan issue. <laughs> A lack of civic education. No, I, I really am, I, I, I say that as a joke. Because I think very often when we hear about civility talk, I mean this question, can it be taught, can it be learned? Yes. But I don't think it's the sort of thing that, you know, a crisis of civility isn't going to be solved through, you know, a campaign of civic education. I think that, you know, the, the problems are deeper than that. I suppose part of what I really learned in, in writing the book is that the sociological drivers of a crisis of, of, of civility are much, much deeper, right? And are really intractable often to policy. Um, so I'm not presenting mere civility as a panacea for all that ails us, 
right? I think that you know, if you want to look at one driver of this kind of this new crisis of civility that we're facing, and again, I don't, I, I, there never was a golden age, right? I'm not saying that there was a great, great time, but I do think that there is something about this peculiar moment, and a lot of it is this kind of process of geographical sorting along partisan lines, um, and the fact that you get basically red. Uh, rural areas and then blue urban areas and that increasingly we're not actually, we live together as part of the same civil society or civitas. So we're all members of the same state and yet we don't actually live together concretely in the same geographical space. And so that, you know, we're not doing this business of sort of bumping in or rubbing along together those with whom we disagree and so we're able to fall into some really sloppy thinking about why people might have other conclusions or other you know, beliefs about politics than the ones we happen to hold. So I don't think being more virtuous is gonna fix that, but I do think being more virtuous <laughs> is essential if things aren't gonna get much, much, much worse. So I, it's really interesting. So, so where do facts fit in, right? I mean, it's interesting that you described it just then as almost impossible. I think the, the phrase you're actually looking for is it's really hard. It's not impossible. It's hard. It's unpleasant. And it's frustrating, right? And I think that part of the problem is that we, are, we have an orientation towards disagreement that suggests that, that it's oriented towards success, which is defined as convincing someone or persuading someone to change their mind. I don't actually consider that to be the criterion of a successful disagreement. I think people very rarely change their mind because someone has persuaded them or offered, you know, persuaded them that something else is the case. Um, and here I think that using the example of 17th century evangelicals is really good because there is this sense that ultimately only Digitus Dei, the finger of God, is going to be capable of actually bringing someone to see the light. So the evangelist has to engage in evangelism. That's a duty of a Christian. But to claim that you are actually capable of changing someone's mind is a kind of pride or arrogance. Only God can do that. And so it leads to a kind of ethos of disagreement that's not oriented towards that success outcome. And I think that you begin to see the disagreement as something more than just a kind of conflict between two parties. The audience to a disagreement is always bigger than the two parties engaged in it, right? People are watching. I mean, online, it, this is clearer than ever before. When we're disagreeing with someone online, thousands upon thousands of people are watching. They're learning, right? So you may not convince your interlocutor's mind you might not change their mind. You might change someone else's mind. Or years down the line, someone will find that their mind has changed and they can't point to the, can't point to the moment at which that happened. So I actually think this sort of, I, you know, I, I, I'm, worried, you know, I'm worried about you know, alternative facts. I'm worried about these things. But I actually think it's not 
really relevant <laughs> to the matter of civility. I know that's very often not what people want to hear, but you know, I'm in the business of telling uncomfortable truths. Oh, let's, can we have it from a, can we have it from a student? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hi. So how could we as students spread your message of civility or the message of civility on our campus today? I'm so glad you asked that. Well, you know, as President Crutcher mentioned, I have a TED Talk. Uh, <laughs> and it's at 1.6 million views. But you know, anyway, I, you know, I kid. Uh, but really, it's a really good TED Talk. Uh, no, OK. Um, yeah, I think this is such a good question, and I don't have an easy answer for you. What I would just remind you is to say that civility begins at home. So if you're really worried about how other people are behaving, other people are so uncivil, other people are failing to be reasonable, other people don't consider facts, look at yourself and see if you can do better. And setting an example for yourself first, I think is the really important thing. And I'm really incredibly privileged to be in a position where I teach young people. I, because I wrote a book about civility in 2017, you know, I suddenly got invited to give lectures like this one to audiences all over the country. I mean, it's an incredible privilege to be able to say, this is really hard work and it needs to be done, but it's unglamorous and I'm just going to do my best. But I really struggle, you know, and I think all I can do is really be honest about that. Okay. In the uh, forward to one of his books, John Dewey said that he felt that he learned more from those that he disagreed with than those whom he agreed with. Mm. So I'm assuming that perhaps this might be a, an illustration of civility. What do you think? I mean, I th that always sounds good to me. It sounded good when John Stuart Mill said it too. I just don't know that that's always true. Or rather, it's always true. I don't know if it's a really helpful truth to those who don't already subscribe to it. Right? I think that there is a kind of liberal sensibility, and I mean liberal in the kind of traditional sense, of open, generous, uh, deliberative, this kind of, you know, not politically liberal, but, you know, so that, and I, and, I, and I have a lot of respect and time for that kind of sensibility. I would like to think of myself as a liberal in precisely that sense. But um, I think too often with liberals of the 19th and 20th century, it went hand in hand with a kind of philosophy of, of history that assumed that they were going to win out. And I go back to this idea of the kind of unreasonable faith that underlies a tolerant society, or indeed a liberal one. There's a kind of unreasonable faith here. Um, and I don't think you can take solace in some, you know, this isn't, I, I don't mean to, 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 to poo-poo John Dewey, because I think very highly of John Dewey, but there comes to a point where it, it just sounds a bit platitudinous. Um, and so, I don't think that saying you're going to learn from disagreement is really going to convince someone who doesn't already believe that already. So maybe what you have to say to them is it going to make you better at defending your views, which is another thing that John Stuart Mill says, right? To really motivate them to get out there and do it. Well, there may be more questions, but I think we're out of time. I have more if answers. More about your civility, um, you can purchase a book. Your civility, civility, and the Dr. Carl Reiser, and then Dr. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for coming.